This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. From the perspective of the fans, they don't want a labor dispute, and that's why our number one priority is to make a deal. Welcome back to The Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Evan Drellick, senior writer for The Athletic. Before we get going, I just wanted to remind you about The Athletic's Black Friday deal. You can get all of our great writing for just a dollar a month for 12 months. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show to lock in. Truly, honestly, our very best price of the year. Again, just $1 a month for new subscribers. We've got a roundtable this week discussing team spending, particularly the high-end spending, you know, the Fifth Avenue Tiffany, Saks Fifth Avenue type of stuff. Lindsey Adler, who covers the Yankees. Tim Britton, who covers the Mets. And Andy McCullough, who used to cover the Dodgers and now just does lovely features for us, are going to be talking with me about how big market teams are approaching spending, the sports luxury tax threshold, the CBT, as people call it. Uh, the CBT this year was $210 million, and you don't see a lot of teams going over it anymore. It's one of the primary areas the players are seeking changes in in collective bargaining. Players, naturally, want teams to be able to spend more without having to pay a penalty. Owners thus far are known to only want it lower. It's possible they come around and agree to raise it, but the proposals the owners have made thus far that we know about, at least, have included lowering it, and that was part of a larger system change. Let's recap where we are. The CBA is going to expire a week from today at 11.59 Eastern, on December 1st, if there isn't a new deal, you're going to have a lockout likely starting on December 2nd. It's not an absolute guarantee. It's a virtual guarantee. Very close, uh, very strong likelihood that that would be the course the owners choose. They could choose to wait. They're probably not going to. Last week, MLB had its quarterly owners meetings. This go around there in Chicago. Commissioner Rob Manford did a press conference at the end of those meetings as he typically does uh, these have happened before and media has attended them before Manfred you know, to his credit at least he's speaking he probably could have gone to these things uh, and not done anything that wouldn't be in fitting with what he's done in the past and what the sport has seen in the past he still speaks more often than say Roger Goodell of the NFL but he didn't sit around and answer a ton of questions I think he ended up speaking for about 17 minutes maybe four or five minutes of that was an opening spiel and then you know, 10 to 12 minutes or so, rough estimate of questions, which is to say there's a lot of things I and I'm sure others would have liked to have asked him about bargaining and other topics that we just didn't get to. Um, one thing I did get in was whether he thought a work stoppage would affect his legacy, whether a lockout started by the owners on December 2nd would look bad on his resume. Uh, you know, and this is the context of both him and Bud Selig, his predecessor, have long touted the labor piece in the sport. And so if you're going to, for years and years, talk about how great this labor piece has been, well, what happens when it ends? What happens when you arrive at a work stoppage? He actually paused ever so briefly before answering that question. I guess one could infer he was gathering his thoughts. And his answer was ultimately akin to what players often say is kind of a, cl a cliche. I'm just doing the best I can to help the team or in this case, the sport and its owners? The way I think about my job is that uh, I try to come to work every day and do the very best job 
for the owners, the clubs, and our fans. Um, whatever my quote-unquote legacy turns out to be, um, it's going to turn out to be all I can do is do the very best I can each individual day. In this circumstance, I think the best thing for the clubs and the fans is to do everything humanly possible to make an agreement. But Manfred also said something that suggested to me he's a little too close to the situation to understand how a lockout looks to the public. I can't believe there's a single fan in the world who doesn't understand that um, an off-season lockout that moves the process forward is different than a labor dispute that costs games. I mean, it's just... I, I, th I think it's more that they think one's going to portend the other. And that if, if they hear the word lockout, they hear the word labor stoppage, and all of a sudden, worst-case scenario comes into their mind. I don't know, Jeff. The, the best I can tell you on that is... Um, I spent, you know, I left a pretty good job with a pretty good future to try to get this industry to the point where we can make deals without labor disputes. I don't think there's anybody who understands any better than I do um, that from the perspective of the fans, they don't want a labor dispute and that's why our number one priority is to make a deal. Just the other day, I was explaining to a player the difference between a lockout and a strike. So if not all players understand it, then I highly doubt the general public does. So when Manfred sits there and goes, I don't think there's a single fan who, who, who doesn't see the difference. Well, they don't even know the basics, I think, in, in some cases. The difference, by the way, between simply a lockout and a strike is that one is initiated by the players. That's the case of a strike. And one is initiated by the owners in the case of a lockout. There are some other more subtle differences, but that's, that's the one to understand and also understand that a lockout is what you're going to see in the major sports going forward. And that's what we've seen since the 94-95 strike. There has not been a strike since then because owners don't want to give players the opportunity to walk out. And that's something that Manfred actually directly addressed in his press conference, that thinking and the examples that have been had in the other sports, where if you think to hockey and basketball, it has all been lockouts since that baseball strike in 94-95. What Manfred's press conference really did for me, and I think for other writers who were there as well, if you go and read uh, some of the other stories that were written uh, about it, but by all means, please check out what I wrote off of it for The Athletic. He was basically giving credence to the idea that the owners think a lockout is the best route they can take if they don't have a deal come December 1st. Manfred did not answer why more proposals haven't been made at this point. I think that's an important question because if the goal and the stated goal, as Manfred said it was, is, is to avoid work stoppage and get a deal done and all these things, well, then shouldn't there be a flurry of proposals on both sides over the core economics? And the reality is they have many, many topics of bargaining to discuss and they do, have talked about all of them. But the core economics has not seen a large number of proposals, even if there's been one in the last couple of days that we don't yet know about. Um, it's, it's been a kind of a trickle on both sides for that, for the core economics. And the reason for that, in part, is because both sides can look at the other and go, well, you're proposing something so much different than what I'm proposing. I'm not going to bargain against myself. Either way, the end result is we're barreling toward an off-season lockout 
at least, and you don't know whether an off-season lockout turns into something more, and there just hasn't been that many proposals uh, on either side over the core economics. So meanwhile, last few days, the union, the Players Association, put out a 36-page document, a PDF, explaining some basics about how a lockout would work. It's kind of a digital pamphlet. It's not 36 pages of super dense text. It's not like reading the collective bargaining agreement, which I know everyone here listening has done many, many times. Um, it's larger text and there, there's some graphics, so it, it's a little shinier looking, but it answered basic questions about health insurance. Would players still have health insurance? The answer is if you were on a 40 man roster, through last season in 2021, at any point, not just through, if you were on a 40-man roster, you were covered up until uh, the start of April through March. Um, and at that point, uh, if, if you're not currently on a 40-man roster, and, and some players w who were on a 40-man roster in 2021 are not presently, um, you're not covered. Uh, so there are things that the players have to work out and, and plan for. There was some financial planning advice in there, basic things like be willing to tell friends and family no or, or limit what money you give only to kind of close friends and family. And also the, the document noted that drug testing in the sport is likely to stop if there's a lockout. Uh, that, that's been historically what's been seen in other situations. So if we arrive at a lockout, the joint drug agreement, the, the thing that controls all the PED testing and, and uh, all the related performance enhancement uh, monitoring, that, that would disappear for a time, which, which seems at least notable. Um, all of this is kind of to say that there really hasn't been substantive news in the bargaining world in the last week. We don't have a sense of any new significant developments in proposals. Uh, even if some have been made, there's no sense of them getting really any closer. And guess what? Time is running out. We're not far from a lockout now. Um, it's a scary time for baseball, but one that we knew was likely coming. And we'll see what this next week brings. It should be considerably more intense. But fortunately for now, you have the Athletics Crack Bargaining Team here to discuss one of the topics that is front and center and that is that CBT issue, how much those big market teams that can approach the CBT and sometimes don't uh, are willing to spend. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing 
ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB Show. We have got an all-star roundtable today. We've got three of the Athletics' absolute finest writers. First up is Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees. And I believe, Lindsay, you're having some internet trouble? How's that going for you? Oh, you know, just another day on Spectrum. Oh, that's that's lovely. Good for you. Uh, we've got Tim Britton, your New York counterpart, and who the guy who lives... 10 blocks away from me. How you doing, Timmy? Good. I, I, I love being able to see you on Zoom rather than in person all the time. <laughs> uh, hi, Andy. How are you? Andy McCullough, who very famously covered the 2014-2015 Kansas City Royals, as well as at one point the Los Angeles Dodgers. How you doing, Andy? I'm fine, Evan. That's good. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. I'm going I'm to read something very quickly. Uh, that, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was an agent guy that the MLBPA put together, Ken Rosenthal and I reported on it two days ago. And at the end of this thing, they had four bargaining points that the union is focused on. And one of them was about, quote, reducing artificial restraints on competition. And this is what the union said. Restrictions like the competitive balance tax, CBT, and draft pick compensation continue to affect how clubs compete for players and provide convenient excuses for clubs to justify their lack of competitiveness. These artificial drags on player compensation must be addressed. Um, I think the Dodgers are the new Yankees, but it's probably better to start off with the question of whether the Yankees are still the Yankees when it comes to spending. You know, I grew up in New York. Uh, I I know Tim did as well, and I, I think we both remember, and I'm sure everybody here remembers, that for a very long time, the Yankees seemed to be the gold standard of spending. Um, are the Yankees still the Yankees when it comes to spending and going over the CBT, Lindsay, or something changed in the Hal Steinbrenner era? Um, you know, I was thinking yesterday about how how much George Steinbrenner's legacy still hangs over the franchise. It's impossible to look at the way that his son Hal operates without reflecting back um, on his father. And Evan, you were in Chicago last week at the owners meeting and two things that Hal said stuck out to me. One was that, you know, we're not going to be reactionary. Um, We're going to basically make smart moves, which is basically what the Yankees and every other organization tries to do. But then it was also Hal saying something about how he told cash to go get Joey Gallo. He very much, you know, wanted it to be clear that like he wanted to upgrade the team last year. Let me, let me repeat what I say every year, okay? okay? Sorry, but, you know, maybe some people haven't heard it, okay? <laughs> Any given year, there's a number of reasons to try to stay under the threshold, but we rarely do because our number one goal is to field a championship caliber team, period. So, and, you know, I used the Tanaka example when we signed him. 
trade deadline. I said, I want Joey Gallo. We need Joey Gallo. And I told Cash, and you can ask him, if we have to go over to get Joey Gallo, we go over to get Joey Gallo. So I think it's hard to look at the Yankees um, in this era with the history of how George Steinbrenner operated, where it was, get me every free agent. You know, Brian Cashman talks about how it was really kind of hard to construct a roster when the club owner thought that they could just put, you know, 55 of the best players in the world on it. Um, the Yankees still spend. I would almost be, I, I almost wonder if we're reaching a point now where it's like, well, the Yankees have actually been spending, um, you know, around the $200 million mark or more, and they're not winning. So it's, as with everything with the Yankees, when it comes to money, um, it's sort of a, it's open to your interpretation, but yeah, they, they spend. And I think the concern is that I'm not sure that spending more is necessarily going to immediately unlock the door, but um, they're looking for something. Yeah. It's interesting. If you look at Cot's contracts, which there's a lot of different websites these days that have a listing of team payroll and, and there's sometimes different calculations, opening day, luxury tax calculation, end of the year, whatever. You, you can get to different numbers. But if you look at COTS, in 2006, the Yankees were at $194 million. In 2008, they were at 209 And this year, they're at 197 And so there, there just hasn't been a lot of growth. And actually, there was somebody, I believe this was reported in a story I did, uh, so I guess it was reported by me, that the Dodgers have, have overtaken the Yankees as the team that generates the most revenue. Um, and Andy got there after the Guggenheim baseball group took over, I believe. But th when, when they got there, Andy, and this, this current Dodgers ownership, was there a sense that they were trying to supplant the Yankees, that they wanted to go over the CBT, that spending was going to be part of their formula? Um, well, yeah, that was that was baked into the calculus. Can, can I go back to what you said at the beginning of this, sure. by the way, with the with the uh, the the memo that they yes. sent out to the players yes. when they talk about how like um, the artificial stuff, like the the CBT and the uh, draft pick compensation, that's like hurting competition. Right. Um, are they telling the players that Abner Doubleday invented those, or are they admitting that they just lost in all the other negotiations? Like what? How do they think those guys? That's there? right. They did. They did not appear out. Of they scenario. bargained for this. It's whatever. <laughs> um, it's just like how, okay. Uh, the bases have to be the bases have to be ninety feet apart. You know, the mound is sixty feet six inches, and you know, certain free agents you can make an eighteen point four million dollar offer to. It was, it was decreed. Uh, anyway, when. The Guggenheim baseball group uh, took over, led by Mark Walter, uh, in 2012. The idea was, uh, I don't know if the idea was they were going to supplant the Yankees per se, but it was always baked in that they were going to spend a lot. The idea was that they would hopefully, if and from their perspective, get to the point where uh, they kind of were in like 2016, 2017, 2018, where they weren't spending the most of any team. 
um, but they would have the farm system, you know, to sort of uh, have the, kind of the best of both worlds. But yeah, like when you look at, you know, the 2013 team, 2014, 2015, like those had huge payrolls and it was because they, um, you know, one of the first major moves they did was taking on Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett and Carl Crawford from Boston, um, basically just paying for them, you know, paying a little bit in prospects, but mostly just being willing to take on those contracts. And that was sort of the, they wanted to contend right away. And they knew that they, you know, in order to do that, they were going to have to spend. Um, so they spent on those guys. They spent on Zach Greinke. And the idea was that underneath the surface, they would, you know, build the farm. And I think so when you hear, you know, teams like the Mets or, um, you know, in Boston after Heim Bloom took over, this idea that you know, they were going to go on the Dodgers model. Well, the Dodgers model was prefaced on throwing a shitload of money on the front end. And then, uh, you know, building up the farm on the back end. And I think what a lot of teams are doing is just building up the farm and the infrastructure without that huge sort of uh, influx of cash, I guess. Right. In a, in a way, it's kind of an example that if you want to win right away, if you're a new ownership group, you, you don't have to tank. You could spend and then simultaneously build up the farm system. It can be done. It's just considerably uh, more expensive. All right. Let's go to Tim, who covers the dear New York Mets. Um, you know, when Steve Cohen takes over, Tim, I, I looked at it, and I'm sure a lot of people looked at it and said, well, if there's somebody who's going to be willing to be, quote unquote, reckless with the CBT, and I guess we'd have to define what reckless is, but if there's somebody who's going to disregard it and go over it, probably the richest owner in the sport, a guy who's worth, what, some 10 plus billion dollars, would be the one to do it. They go out and get Lindor, they, but they haven't really... Mm, knocked everybody's socks off yet with spending is he going to is there a plan here for steve cohen to flex some muscle and act like a steinbrenner or even i don't know a mike illich a plan wow that, that's something that that's a word we don't generally use when discussing the new york mets first of all andy do not forget nick punto he was also a part of that trade with the dodgers the, the nick punto trade <laughs> uh, uh you know with, with with Cohen, first, I believe that the net worth is closer to $16 billion, which is more than twice the next uh, wealthiest owner in Major League Baseball. Uh, it's probably more than like the next three or four guys combined, actually, if you put it all together. I, I'm sorry. I was confusing MLB's annual revenues with Steve <laughs> Cohen's net worth. MLB right. typically takes in about $10 billion a year. I, forgive me for that confusion. I, I mean, Cohen said the other day that you know Major League Baseball, for, for a small industry, is complicated. Um, and that is something that he has learned over the course uh, of his first year as an owner. You know, I think defining what reckless is in terms of the competitive balance tax is really interesting because like, you know, the, the Red Sox in 2018 went over all three tiers uh, of the, the competitive balance tax and they paid a grand total tax of $11 million uh, and they lost, their draft pick went back 10 picks. They won 108 games in the World Series, but still that was kind of defined as reckless within their context because that's why they traded Mookie Betts because they didn't want to keep paying that tax. Like you look at the NBA, which also has a luxury tax setup, and the penalties are so much harsher and you get more teams in the NBA that go over the, the luxury tax than in Major League Baseball. It's like an average of five a year in the NBA. It's about three in Major League Baseball since we've had this this current format of the luxury tax dating back to, to 2002. Uh, so... You know, like last year, the, the Golden State Warriors get Kelly Oubre, a, a fine player, for $14 million. It cost them $68 million in tax, and they did it anyway. Like, could you imagine a Major League Baseball team 
signing Avasayul Garcia or someone like that to a two-year, $28 million contract and adding $70 million in tax and feeling okay with that. Like, you know, no team has really been reckless with the competitive balance tax in baseball. Uh, I think the Mets uh, will be perceived by the industry as potentially being reckless uh, this offseason. We'll see uh, how they operate. Cohen has, has clearly dropped hints that, that they would go over whatever the tax ends up being. Uh, he said back in June that he doesn't believe in just going over it. If you're going to go over it, you go over it. Uh, and, you know, they're in a position where... Uh, this is he's an owner who cares very much about how he's perceived as an owner by the fan base. That explains a lot of his Twitter account. Uh, you know, as a hedge fund operator, he was very comfortable working in the shadows. Uh, here he wants to be known as kind of Uncle Stevie, right? Uh, and wants credit for uh, bringing the Mets back. And a lot of that will be spending in a way that the Wilpons didn't uh, over the last 10 to 15 years of their ownership. Uh, and so we'll see how they operate. Uh, you know, now that they have a front office, for years, the Mets had a front office, but no money. And, and for the first part of this offseason, they had money, but not a front office. Uh, so now that now that they have Billy Epler in place, will they actually go out and be able to, to spend on players and and go above and beyond what they what they're used to? You know, at the owners meeting, uh, there was an owner who was talking uh, about a time when they went out and signed a player to a large contract and they were roundly ripped by other owners, that this was something that other owners pay attention to. I guess we know this, uh, but I wonder, and it might not be totally knowable, Tim, or, or for anybody who wants it, but are the owners trying to stay under the CBT as a means of impressing one another? <laughs> is there is there a sense of obligation to the other owners that you're not going to spend over this amount, and you know you're a fool if you if you do? I, I are are you are you suggesting that they are? Colluding? No, I, I, I was not suggesting it was a formal form of collusion. Just that there are social pressures of being a major league baseball owner. I will say this. Sorry, before I cut. Sorry for cutting you off, Tim. But I, I just will say, baseball owners do get made fun of by the owners in the other sports for not having a salary cap. Right. Which is why they want. They one. get teased about yeah. that. Which is why they want one. Yes, they get teased about it. Yeah. Got it. What do you yeah, think, I mean, Tim? I, I try hard not to tap into the collective consciousness of the, the ownership class in Major League Baseball uh, and what drives them. I, I think if we're talking about Cohen in particular, I think maybe last year he would have worried about the impression that he made on other owners. Uh, I think uh, this year he is probably not as concerned about that. Uh, and, you know, he, he's had his run-ins already with, like, Brewers owner Mark Atanasio about trying to hire David Stearns. Uh, he, I don't think he likes Jerry Reinsdorf very much uh, from uh, the way the White Sox owner felt Does about Cohen's candidacy. Does anybody besides Bud I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think, yeah, there is a, a, there's probably that peer pressure that, you know, why don't wreck this for all of us by spending too much. I mean, we've seen that the way the Yankees... Yankees used to outspend teams by seventy and eighty million dollars every year, and now they're just part of the part of that top tier with everyone else grouped together. And I think, you know, going back to Andy's point about Abner Doubleday uh, mandating the collective the the, the CBT, uh, you know, I, I think it was bargained, but I don't think even when it came into play uh, that that players expected teams to to uh, hew to the line as much as they have. Uh, because we've seen in other sports, you know, in the NBA, like teams don't uh, toe that line quite as as often with larger penalties. So that we have teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox, like the Red Sox trading Mookie Betts and David Price to get under the tax right after, you know, two years after winning the World Series. 
Uh, I don't think anyone expected that kind of behavior from clubs. Uh, and now you've got try, the, the players trying to kind of get the, the toothpaste back into the tube. Okay, so are teams being too precious about the CBT? The, the penalties, I think, is 10 pointed. It's not that much to go over it, um, but it's also not the most efficient way of spending. Like, if you were going to have a kind of credulous read on it uh, and credulous toward the owners, you, you, you could see how they could go, well, it's just, it's just not the best use of my money. I have to pay a tax on it, so why do I want uh, to pay a tax on it? Um, but maybe Lindsay can, from a Yankees perspective... Uh, should they be going over it? Do fans think they should be going over it? What, 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 where are we as far as what should be happening? Oh, fans definitely think that the Yankees should be going over the tax every year. Um, it's a it's a fan base that understands that the organization that they root for um, in a in a normal time essentially prints money, and uh, they they understand that the Yankees are without many of the limitations and. You know what Hal Steinbrenner and Brian Cashman have said over the last few years a lot is like, you know, we we are willing to spend whatever it takes, but we don't just want to throw money at anything and we don't want to help our competition um, by paying the competitive balance tax. And I don't I mean, the amount of money that we're talking about here, I don't think it's really going to change the way that maybe a division race shakes out. I think what's interesting to me about the Yankees, and I'd be really curious about Andy's take here is like all spending is not created equal. And I think what Yankees fans are looking for from the organization right now is a lot of, um, you know, patching up holes on the yacht basically. Whereas when I look at a team like the Dodgers, you know, their, their payroll is always very high, but so much of their spending is to, has been in, you know, retaining or paying guys who, who are homegrown or, you know, imported as sort of reclamation projects. And so I think it's sort of just a different type of spending and a different approach to roster construction. And so, yeah, Yankee fans basically just want them to spend whatever it's going to take to win. Um, but when I look at the Dodgers, I see the way their team is constructed as being very, very different from the way this current Yankees team looks, or I guess the Dodgers before like what four guys hit free agency or whatever this year. Yeah. Like the Dodgers up until this point, I think you're, you're totally right, Lindsay, like the, the money, you know, they have never been big players in free agency, um, you know, during this run with Andrew Friedman in charge and that, um, you know, and that's part of, I mean, there's one of many reasons why their acquisition of Trevor Bauer was so shocking last winter. Um, but they tend to spend on, like, it's paying Cody Bellinger in arbitration. Mm-hmm. It's paying Corey Seager in arbitration. It's, um, you know, retaining Justin Turner and Kenley Jansen and Clayton Kershaw when they go to the market. It's not, you know, signing Garrett Cole. It's it's not uh, signing Anthony Rendon. They were interested in those guys, but at, you know, a certain price point. Um, and one of the things that they have done – uh, you know, <clears throat> dating back to like 2016, is they is Andrew Freeman basically created a spot on his CBT payroll for a superstar mm-hmm. player, for a guy who was going to have an AAV of 25 to 30 million, and he spent several years essentially trying to figure out who would fill that spot. You know, they thought about Bryce Harper. Um, you know, they thought it might be Garrett Cole. He got more money from the Yankees. Um, you know, they they talked about Francisco Lindor, and they eventually you know got it 
in Mookie Betts was, you know, filled that spot. The Yankees, you know, had a similar uh, thought, which is part of why they got Giancarlo Stanton is because he made sense on their CBT payroll that you could get a, you know, you could get a superstar at a slight discount because the AAV was less. It's just Mookie Betts is a better player than Giancarlo Stanton, who's a very good player. But um, so there's some similarities there, but I think like, you know, it's not like the Dodgers after that initial flurry in 2012 2013 they spend their money basically paying their own guys at this point they don't they tend to not be um you know deep in free agency yeah i think sorry tim um i just i think it is sort of a there is still like i said sort of the 90s yankees hangover where sometimes the best player that you could have on your team is not the most expensive now and i think that's what's pretty interesting is that like I you know I've heard how Steinbrenner and Brian Cashman talk about how you know spending the highest payroll does not always correlate to the most success and obviously we're going to point to the Rays and then looking at a former Rays executive running the Dodgers but I, I just think it's really interesting the way that money is getting spent and it just when it comes to the Yankees it's just such a it's something that I have to think about constantly because the fans understandably know that the ownership has the financial means to go over the collective or over the luxury tax threshold. But um, it's, it's just always a little bit complicated when it, when it comes to this team. Yeah. And I, I think Lindsay hints at it there. Like the, the credulous reading from an owner's perspective is that free agency is not as efficient as it was in the late nineties and uh, early two thousands when players were routinely performing deep into their thirties for various reasons, whatever you want to say that was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Barry Bonds was still a very good hitter into his forties, actually, if you remember. Uh, and you don't, you don't see that very often anymore, you know, and uh, I don't think free agency is as inefficient as a lot of fans will say it is you know fans a a lot of comments i see on stories that i write are kind of uh you know it's never worth it to sign the guy to the seven or eight nine ten year deal uh and if you look at history like it is often worth it uh you know max scherzer was the the best free agent signing probably since bonds in san francisco Uh, a lot of other big free agent pitchers like won the world series with the team that signed them in john lester and steven strasberg uh scherzer uh david price like the the biggest contracts for pitchers have generally paid off but that's not kind of their reputation and i think there's also been a change in the way fans view things i think outside of new york i think the yankees fans are probably uh different than a lot of fan bases uh who they're they're okay with their team sitting out big free agency because they don't think that's the best way to build a team uh, because they're used to playing MLB the show or whatever and, and you know it's more fun to build the team from the ground up to go through the rebuilding process to go through the five year plan just to have a plan like fans want their teams to have a plan uh, and to have an to to think that they're actually doing something smart behind the scenes uh, to be more efficient or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I wanted to trace some of that here in our fine round table the fan approach to team spending and it seems to me that it's a it's a dual factor thing where you had both fantasy baseball takeover tim's probably right about video games as well and moneyball you know the 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 outgrowth of moneyball creates this um uh, almost weird obsession among fans over how much their team spends and, and really how they spend it um, you know, on one hand, it's true that every team's budget is ultimately finite somewhere. So the better money is spent, 
the better chance the team has to win, right? You can't ignore that. But then at the same time, like, dude, it's not your fantasy team. It's not your money. You also probably can't fathom the amount of money your team's owner has and makes. Don't you want to watch the best team possible? Um, so the question to whoever wants it is, you know, am I tracing the history of this properly? And is it, um, is it the way fans should think, the way they are thinking? I don't know. I mean, you you are tracing the history properly. It is it is some sort of confluence of um, you know video games, fantasy sports, and uh, Moneyball. I also think that most fans could not ever imagine themselves like starting Game Seven of the World Series, but they probably could imagine themselves like being a GM. Um, it just seems like a more attainable <clears throat> sort of goal. Um, yeah, I mean, I sometimes like when I write about the Dodgers. Uh, I will like look at my mentions and people will just be like, oh, the Dodgers buy their championships. And it's sort of like, whoa, that's like still a take that people have. That's cool. Like, you know, it's like it's like weird. It's like, you know, like turning on talk radio from like 2003 and like hearing, you know, WIP debate whether like Jim Tomey's tough or not. Like, it's interesting. Um, it's like a, it's like a you know, it's like a, a message from a from a distant land. Um, I don't know. I think fans should, you know, look at should follow the sport in whatever way makes them happy. And if they view it as a way to, as some sort of like intellectual contest where the idea is to be as smart as possible in your, uh, you know, team construction, that there are certain teams who maybe fit that void. But if you're into like, you know, uh, a communal experience based around like winning, uh, there's other ways to take it in, I guess. I mean, I think, you know, what fans are looking for varies from person to person. I mean, I can understand how there would be fans who would, you know, look at the 2016 Cubs. And even though that team did not, or that, you know, core did not turn out to be a dynasty, you have like homegrown guys who genuinely seem like they're friends. And to me, that seems a little bit um, more fun to root for than just a bunch of like, you know, imported rentals who happen to win a world series. But at the end of the day, like flags fly forever and winning is what's, important and I think what's uh, you know I I think I think fans are often wrong and I think it's okay that fans are wrong I think with the Yankees I look at writers are never wrong (laughs) I'm always I I was actually going to say I could actually imagine myself starting game seven of the world series uh probably more realistically than I could running a team I mean I could go out there and just get lit up. That that seems pretty efficient to me. Um, but trying to plan out plan out the roster construction is much more tedious to me than just um, closing my eyes and throwing the slider or whatever. But you know, with the Yankees, like fans really wanted them to be in on Manny Machado, and then they were really upset when they signed DJ LeMahieu, who wound up having you know, two really great seasons on sort of a surprise contract. And then DJ had a down season this year while being injured after getting, you know, a fairly big deal in free agency and fans are upset about it again. And it's not quite clear what his, you know, playing time is going to look like. And I think these things are just so they, they change with, with, I mean, literally with the baseball seasons and, you know, with, with where the team is at. And I think I, I understand why fans get so invested in the way that teams spend their money, especially because even with a team like the Yankees, uh, the impression has been given that there is going to be a budget and they can only have so many 
quote unquote big contracts on it. But um, it's just it's just always funny to me to look at the way that people view contracts in or in spending in retrospect. Like I think fans were rightfully outraged when the team salary dumped Adam Ottavino to the Red Sox last year, but then they weren't <laughs> sad about the outcome when uh, when Ottavino like you know, blew a game late in the season to the Yankees. And so um, I appreciate the emotion and all of the energy spent um, thinking about team spending, but it, it seems like, you know, these things just sort of come and go as well. I have a true or false. And I, I guess I'll weigh in at the end. I don't want to color anybody's responses up, but I, I do have an opinion. True or false spending makes baseball more interesting. The addition of top players creates excitement Add theater to the storylines. Anybody? Did, did you write that yourself? I, I did. Like the, I, I, like the, I crafted those yeah. words. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say true. Uh, I do think there are probably uh, a fair number of fan bases remembering the late 90s and early 2000s in particular who would say false because they think of the Yankees just getting every big player at that that point in time, even though the Yankees were not winning uh, after the year 2000, not winning World Series with much consistency. Um I think you could probably put it the other way and get uh, more universality that like not spending is bad for the sport um, and, and drives down fan interest and detracts from theater and all that. And I think you'd get 30 fan bases that agree with that statement more so than the spending makes it better. But I, I mean, I, I do think like when you have teams, we see uh, that the, the most interest in the sport is around the trade deadline and around free agency, more so than any point in the regular season, more so even than, than most of the, the playoffs, because it's about player acquisition. That's the most exciting thing to most fan bases across sports is player acquisition uh, and having multiple, you know, competitive, a competitive market for player acquisition is good for the sport. It's good for fan interest across the country. Yeah, I mean, I think what Tim is saying is just objectively true in the uh in the greater sense. Um, I think if you're asking me personally, like I think the fetishization of roster construction is like one of the factors that's destroying sports writing. Um, so like it's false for me. I don't think the spending is interesting. Just tell me who's on which team and then I'll go watch the games in April. But uh, I also understand why readers really care about it because they want to know who's going to be on their team. I, I, I do think spending is important. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it creates excitement and I think, I think in the, you know, we're looking at something like, you know, Wander Franco probably signing a, an up to 12 year extension. Like that's exciting for race fans. They get to buy jerseys. They get to, you know, know that this guy is at least going to be there for the first chunk of the contract. I think even as much as, you know, the whole industry sort of seems to fetishize the Rays and whatnot, like the transient nature of a Rays roster still sort of bums me out, even though I respect the way that Rays fans have come to appreciate it. Um, someone described it as sort of like being a Rays fan. is kind of like being a college football fan or a college basketball fan. You know, they're not going to be there long, but you just want success. But no, I do think it's important to have someone or to have that type of spending and really build that excitement. Um, I actually have a question for Tim. What kind of, what version of spending do the Mets need to do to be contenders next year? Like, how do they need to use their money? No, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You know, I, I think 
like Andy's example with the Dodgers, I think a lot of fans overlook how much they spent early on. And that like those were not the best Dodgers teams. They didn't make the playoffs in 2012, although I think they would have or, or that first year with, with Gonzalez. I think they were close, but didn't make it. Uh, and then and then, you know, 13, 14 and 15, uh, they, they were obviously very good. They went to the playoffs. They won the division, uh, but they weren't kind of these this world destroyer type of team that they eventually became uh, in the latter half of the decade. Uh, but, you know, spending a lot up front while you build out your infrastructure, while, you know, the Mets farm system is not very deep, but it does have some high end talent in the top five of, of its system. Guys who are going to be here in late 23, 24, 25, like spending to bridge that gap, uh, which is spending in, in, in uh, the starting rotation where they have a, a lot of holes and no long-term answers really uh, and figuring out who's good on offense for them. Uh, Cause it's probably, you know, last year they thought it was eight guys and now it's probably two. Uh, those, those are the, like they're going to have to spend a lot. I think, you know, their, their payroll's at about 185 million currently uh, as calculated toward the CBT. They probably got to spend 50 to $60 million this off season. You probably got to get it closer to, to 250 uh, for them to be, really competitive in a division where like the Braves provided they they wise up and sign Freddie Freeman uh, are going to be really good for a while. Uh, so uh, there's there's legit competition there in the way that the NL East didn't portend uh, for most of this season. You know, what's also challenging, like, is that that, you know, the 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 Red Sox had a bunch of contracts that were quote unquote bad contracts, right? Like they were paying too much for like good players like Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett. And uh, I, I guess Carl was not very good at that point, but whatever. Um, that doesn't like who would who would the Mets do that with now? Right. Like who would they who would they try and who's a good player who a a, a team has spent a lot of money on who they want to get rid of? Right. Like I, I was looking through the you know, I actually talking to, to people in the Mets front office last year, like they said, you know, we're we'd be interested in doing something like that. But there isn't like. You know, no team has the that uh, conglomeration of bad contracts where they want to get rid of two hundred and thirty million dollars the way the Red Sox did. Uh, you know, you look at it's kind of like Miguel Cabrera on the Tigers, but he's got two years left. It's and he and you know he's not good. Uh, you know, Josh Donaldson is probably your best bet in Minnesota with two years and and fifty million uh, left on that deal. Like uh, as a guy who you know, especially if there's a DH in the NL, could be a useful player for them. But they also have a lot of guys who should probably be their designated hitter uh, already. So, uh, you know, there, there, isn't, there isn't that person who's on. Like, I don't think they're going to go out and trade for Anthony Rendon and the five years and, I don't know, $180 million left on his or Stanton, for that matter, as a guy who's, who's a good player who's going to be there for a little while. Uh, but they just need to spend all the money for him. You know, they have that guy in Lindor probably, right? Like, that's probably the, the first guy you look at in that regard. I just think that the the landscape has changed where just teams like, I mean, because of how the Red Sox, you know, basically responded in, uh, you know, in 2012 and then again in 2019, like since then teams just don't get over leveraged anymore. They're just way more judicious in how they and how they spend. And so there's fewer opportunities when you have money to burn. Yeah, well, one thing you could if the system were to change such that. you had a greater incentive to to compete, then you might see more deals like that, right? But if owners know that the least expensive way to rebuild your team is is not by acquiring an expensive player, it, it's by losing, then you you just don't have a great incentive to do it. Um, my answer, by the way, to the 
to the question, I, the true or false that I posed is, yes, I think spending makes baseball uh, much more interesting. And I think back to the competition between the Yankees and the Red Sox for A-Rod. And you know, I remember reading the back page on the bus in the middle of all that. And it's hard to divorce my age at the time from uh, the reality of it. But the, the effort of teams to one-up one another, I think, is really essential. I think that's one part of it. It's exciting when one team is trying to kick another team's ass. And there's also the attachment to the individual. I, I didn't have an attachment to A-Rod in any, in any way, but like, why? what's the problem with the opener? What's the problem with the death of starting pitching? The problem is you knew who the starting pitchers were. Even back in the late 90s when you knew who the middle reliever was, Dennis Cook had the, had the seventh inning or had the lefties on the Mets, right? And, and so the anonymization of it all, uh, I think, greatly hurts the marketing of it. Um, and that's, that's my little speech for today. Um, last thing, what, what do you guys think should happen with CBT? If you were at the bargaining table on either side, what would you be pushing for? I mean... If I were if I were the owners, I would be pushing for harsher penalties, pushing for a lower. Right, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase like, the question. <laughs> what 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 do you think? What is best for the sport? What is best for the sport? I I think what's best for the sport is probably uh, to get rid of it, like and to have uh, teams try to win on a consistent basis. I, I mean, I I don't think uh, getting back to the like your original quote on the competitive balance tax. I don't think that's the number one problem with with team construction these days. I think like the the way that losing has been incentivized uh, through the draft, uh, you know, Scott Boris's point about draft pools and all that, uh, the way that fan bases buy rebuilding processes and, and kind of like them and root for them uh, in a way that they didn't 10 years ago even. Uh, I think those are things that, that you worry more about competition in that sense. You have so many hundred lost teams year after year in a way that you just didn't uh, uh, a decade and a half ago. Uh, but I do think for the, the overall health of the sport, for the overall interest in the sport, uh, you know, having teams openly compete uh, for players that way uh, would, would be better for it. Yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim's spot on. Um, I think the I, I, I think, it, you know, I would be interested to know, like, w how fans really do react to like the long scale tank job, because like it doesn't seem like it's being met with much enthusiasm in Baltimore right now. Um, I, I wonder if that phase has almost passed where I think the new model is something akin to like what the Brewers and the A's and the Giants have done. The sort of like we're not going to, you know, we're going to there's value in winning 75 games and then all of a sudden we're going to be able to win 95 games if we keep making these moves. Uh, but that also is <clears throat> like harder to do, I guess, than just to strip everything down to the studs and, you know, lose for five years. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, uh, most fans don't think of the Orioles when they, they advocate for their team to tank. They think of the Astros, they think of the Cubs, they think of the teams that won the World Series. And if the if the Giants and the or the Brewers win the World Series, uh, that changes things, shows a different model. Uh, but... But I just feel like, I mean, the Phillies did that. You know, the Phillies, like, tanked. And, like, that's been terrible, you know. Uh, I, there's other examples. I mean, I don't know. The Marlins are, like, perpetually tanking, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's hard to know who's who's tanking and who's just, like, not good, right? right? Like, what are the Rockies The Diamondbacks. Doing? You know, yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, you have, uh, you, you know, you, don't, you forget how difficult tanking is. That, like, you know, it, it helps when your, like, under slot number one draft pick that you sign is Carlos Correa. 
right? Like that that helps you when you tank or that like you trade Scott Feldman for Jake Arietta. You need to hit on those things. Um, but maybe maybe the maybe fans would just have a more sort of like um, uh, you know sort of caustic view of tanking if the coverage in the Houston Chronicle had just been tougher <laughs> on those Astros. I mean, if it just hadn't been constant, you know drum bang about how much they were geniuses they should, they should have hired uh, andy mccullough in houston that would that would have been a proper move Lindsay, what do you think should happen with the cbt i mean as andy shuffles chips do i hear that properly are you shuffling <laughs> chips right now andy oh yeah he's, he's showing us on zoom the three chips he has that he stole from some off strip casino in vegas oh. go on Lindsay. i know it's i have a set i mean i i think I it's them. hard for me because i cover one of the wealthiest teams in baseball and no i i don't think it makes sense to uh, you know, for the league to put handcuffs on a team that has the capacity to spend. I think in general, something like a salary floor is much more uh, important to me because at the end of the day, like the fans are investing in the team, whether it's their time or their angst or their money. Um, and I, I think it's only fair to have <sighs> to have something that establishes a baseline investment in a team. And I think I I do think about Baltimore a lot because I see them 19 times a year and I don't know what else I would prescribe for the Orioles aside from their full tank job, tear down rebuild. Like I don't know how you would have made the Orioles competitive without sort of tearing it down to the studs. Um, But aesthetically it's really, displeasing and I think I I think one thing that you know gets talked about quite a bit but somehow sort of gets underestimated is like veteran spending um, when you have all of these teams that really want to put together contending teams through young homegrown cores understandably because they're cheap for the first few years of their career like I do think it is really important to have experienced winning players in the room who may come at a little bit more of a premium than you maybe want to pay for a guy who's like 31. But like that, that does seem important to me in building future success for a team. And so I think it's just the idea of limiting how much a team or, you know, disincentivizing a team from spending is just silly to me but it's also something that's hard for me to talk about because i understand why fans in smaller markets where um where they do feel those restrictions a little bit more i understand why that's not a very satisfying answer for them to hear from someone who covers the new york freaking yankees so i get i get lost in it a lot obviously well just like on the point of baltimore i think the the big difference we've seen in the last since the astros did it essentially is that uh like you know andy mentioned the difference between like trying to win 75 and being okay with winning only 50 to 55 you know like the the orioles there's there's nothing stopping them from going out and signing a bunch of pitchers to one-year deals like major league competent pitchers uh and getting them in there uh rather than throwing like i i, I don't cover the american league east anymore i don't know that i could name Orioles pitchers beyond John Means and Matt Harvey. Uh, like, I don't know how they're filling out their rotation. It was not with really, I don't think it was with big time prospects, really. It was not with guys who were kind of ready for pitching in the AL East. Uh, but their, you know, their payroll is like $95 million less than it was three years ago in, in 2021. Like, I, I don't know why a team in that position can't spend 
some reasonable amount of money. Like the way that you, you look at what the Tigers did last year in signing guys like Jonathan Scope and Robbie Grossman, those aren't going to, you know, that's not going to be the difference between you winning uh, 70 games and winning 90, but it does give you a little bit more respectability. And I don't know why teams who are in the rebuilding process don't do that earlier. Well, I do know why, because it costs like $10 million. Uh, but uh, I, I do I do want to see like harsher consequences for teams uh, that, that decide that like winning 48 games is perfectly acceptable and actually part of the plan. Yeah, I think it, in some in some ways it's it's a it's a little it's kind of like a natural comparison, but it's a little unfair to compare the the Orioles and the Giants because they both had leadership changes um, after the 2018 season. Because um, like the the Orioles won 47 games and the Giants won 73, and I guess there was a perception that they were both like um, you know franchises in really bad shape. 47 is a lot less than 73. Um, however, like they did have Kevin Gaussman. They did have, um, you know, Mike Yastrzemski in the organization. You know, they did have like talent that if you theoretically, you know, tried to win 65 the next year and then 70, you know, like, I don't know. I, I, I just think that full scale like teardown is so unsightly and teams like the Brewers and the A's and the Giants have shown that you just don't need to do it to get back into competitive winning cycles. I, I should have had the three of you on for the tanking show, which was last week when we had Dan Connolly, uh, uh, our Orioles beat writer, discuss all that. But this was great. Uh, I want to thank you, Tim. Thank you, Lindsay. And thank you, Shuffles, very much. Next week's going to be nuts. I don't think there's any other way to say it. After you have your turkey or your vegetarian turkey, if turkey or vegetarian turkey is your thing, the baseball world's going to get pretty wild. Uh, I don't know how loud or crazy it'll get. There's still a tiny chance they get a new deal done in time. There's still a tiny chance they could decide to keep talking. But the greatest likelihood is that next week, on Thursday, we're going to have the start of a lockout. Uh, the Athletic Baseball Show feed is going to return on Tuesday. Ken Rosenthal's mailbag will be on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, we'll have the next episode of our labor discussion I hope to have some special guests, so that'll air probably Wednesday morning. By Wednesday night, we'll know if a new deal has been reached or not. And then on December 2nd, we might have the sport's first work stoppage since the 1994-1995 strike. I'll see you next week. <laughs>